Okay, well, Merry Christmas. Good to see everyone this morning. We uh, come this morning to the conclusion of our study in 1 Peter. I'm going through this through the last uh, several months and really pray that you've been edified by our study together as much as we've been edified in, in preparing this and uh, teaching it. And so as we wrap this up, let's begin by reading what we will be looking at this morning, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 14. Let me read that for us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, so we're going to uh, pick up kind of where Will left off uh, last week, verses 8 through 11. And if you're, if you're with us last week, you may remember that Will brought out for us in that study the exhortation that Peter first gave to the elders or to the pastors in the various churches that would receive this letter. And we saw that in verses 1 through 4 here in chapter 5. And then beginning in the latter part of verse 5, he begins to conclude this letter by addressing all believers. In uh, verse 5 there, if you look with me, the second part of it, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that begins his final words of exhortation uh, to these, these believers. So we'll go ahead and pick up in verse 8. And as we do that, we see a theme that Peter has already mentioned throughout this letter, and he's reiterating one more time. He says here in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, you may remember that Peter first mentioned this at the very beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verse 13, where he said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you may remember from our study in that first chapter, in that context, prior to this verse, he had just exhorted these believers to remain steadfast in suffering, knowing that God has ordained that suffering to purify their faith, to prove it as genuine. And the purification of their faith, Peter said there in 1 Peter 1, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he was exhorting them at that point to think clearly about suffering and God's purpose in that suffering. And then he uses this same word, sober-minded, again in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And 
what we see there, again, is essentially the same type of exhortation that we saw previously, that these believers, prior to this uh, 1 Peter 4, 7, prior to that, he was telling them, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had pertaining to suffering righteously according to the will of God. And so here Peter addresses the need to do so because the end of all things is near. And so that was a great reminder. The end of all things is near, including the suffering that you're experiencing. And he's going to kind of hit on that here a little more as we move on. So those passages kind of help inform what he is concluding with at this point in his letter. Be sober-minded. Let this sink in one last time. Think clearly, think rightly about this suffering that you are experiencing. It's ordained by God for the purification of your faith. And then he essentially reiterates this mentality that they're, that they're to have by telling them, be watchful. So he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, be alert. That, that word literally means give strict attention to something. And what they're to give strict attention to is their faith, their, their trust in God in the midst of suffering. It really is the essence of what Proverbs 4.23 tells us. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Right, And, and the reason that we need to do this the reason for this necessary diligence of being sober-minded, thinking clearly about suffering, watching over our own hearts in the midst of this battle is because we have an adversary. As the rest of verse 8 here in 1 Peter 4 tells us, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, there isn't the word because between the exhortation to be sober-minded and watchful and the next statement of your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, but it's certainly implied here, right? So be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think this is another good reminder for us that we have an adversary, right? We're not just kind of coasting along in our Christian life with no resistance. We have an opponent, one who is against us. And this one, the devil, Peter portrays here as a roaring lion prowling around looking for prey. And I think the point that Peter is getting at here when he says that the devil is like a roaring lion is to remember that the roar of a lion is meant to incite fear and intimidation to those who are near. It's meant to express the lion's great power, right? So you, you, you walk up to a lion and it roars, that incites fear, right? And certainly for any prey that's around, that definitely causes that intimidation. And you can imagine the transition that this would have as Peter uses it here. This persecution that these believers have experienced and the persecution that was forthcoming for them as well as Peter says here in 1 Peter 4.12 where he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That reality was meant by the devil to create this fear 
and intimidation to the point that it would cause them to renounce their faith and go back to the godless ways of the world from which they had come out. And so the enemy was seeking then, as he still does today, to devour their faith. That's what he's after. And he's seeking to cause them to turn their backs on trusting God in the midst of that suffering and go back to the world. And that, that was a real and serious issue, and it still is today for us, right? That's how the enemy seeks to operate, is persecution is meant by the enemy to cause you to turn away from God, to seek from trusting him. That's why a robust understanding of the gospel is so necessary. If you have this false idea that becoming a Christian just means roses all the way to glory, you're going to be greatly disappointed and deceived. This is what Jesus said in his parable of the soils in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, and as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So the gospel comes and they're excited, right? They think they get it. They think they understand it. Yet, Jesus says, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, right? So they continue on for a little bit, but watch this. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so that's what Peter was getting at. You have an adversary. Let me remind you of that. Peter keeps saying the same thing over and over again in this letter. Think rightly about suffering so that you're not deceived when it comes upon you. To think that something strange is happening to you. And so this was a necessary final exhortation here from Peter for these believers to not lose hope, to not abandon their faith in God. He goes on here in verse 9 to show them specifically how to combat this, how to deal with this. Peter says this, resist him. And that phrase literally means to set oneself against, to withstand. And how do you withstand him? How do you do that? By remaining firm. And that word means resolute, immovable in your faith, in your trust that God is at work in the midst of this adversity. So that the command to resist him by being firm in your faith is encouraged by the reality, notice this, that this suffering is the normal experience of being a Christian. Suffering is the normal experience of being a Christian. It's foreign to be a Christian and not suffer. We've experienced some protection from the greatness of that suffering here in the West, but it isn't that way in the majority of the world, and it hasn't been that way throughout the history of the church. And so Peter reminds them, the same things that you're experiencing are being experienced by all your brotherhood throughout the world. This isn't an isolated instance. One of the things that the enemy seeks to do when you're being persecuted for your faith is to cause you to think, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing something right. Man, I shared the gospel. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was like, everybody's going to want to hear this. I can't believe this. They must not have heard this yet, so I got to tell them, right? And you start telling people, and they're like, it's like, okay, that's nice for you. And then people are ostracizing you, and you begin to question, man, maybe, 
maybe I'm not presenting it correctly. Maybe they, they must not understand what I'm saying, right? Because if they were, they would certainly receive this. Um, but then you keep reading scripture. And I remember the time, first time I read 1 Peter 4, it was just like water in a desert. I was like, okay, this is why people aren't responding uh, as openly as I, I thought they might be. And so Peter reminds these believers, and you can just think about the discourse that Jesus had with his disciples the last day that he was with them, where he just constantly reminded them, the world's going to hate you because it hated me first, right? So these, these encouraging things that Jesus is telling them, Peter's just reiterating this and essentially saying it in a slightly different way. So he encourages them, resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I want to walk you through a handful of passages here, and this is by no means exhaustive, not even close to it, but scriptures that speak to this end of suffering as a believer in, in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask some people to jump in here and help me read. First one is Acts 14, verses 19 through 22. Iconium. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. Paul goes into this city, and they stone him to the point that they think he's, he's a goner, right? He must, he's, he's definitely dead. But God raises him up. He's not dead, right? And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. Now, what was Paul's assessment of that? That I must have done something really wrong, right, for that type of reaction. Watch what he says. Okay, there you have it, right? Paul is essentially looking at what happened to him and saying, this is, gonna, this is normal. This is going to happen. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And notice what he did here in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. I mean, if, if you were an eyewitness to what just happened to Paul, you could be like, that, that wasn't what I signed up for. I thought this was, you know, God has a wonderful plan for my life type of mentality, and he does. It's just not the type of wonderful that you conjure it up to be or what many have said it is. Okay, so, so there's a, a good example of it. Paul says, hey, be, strong, be strengthened in your faith, right? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul's encouragement here to the church at Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from Okay, now let's go ahead and... For it has been... Sorry for the snowflake there. <laughs> it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffered for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I shall have, I still have. Okay, so you notice that, right? Here's, here's a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel, standing firm in your faith, not frightened in anything by your opponents, right? And, and, and you notice that aspect, standing firm. The same thing that Peter is saying here, and he'll say it in verse 14, stand firm in this. This is the true grace of God that, that you have received. Don't be frightened by anything that your opponents are doing to you. Why? Because this is actually what Jesus has called you to. It's been granted to you, not only to believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. It's a gift from God. It's used in your life for the purification of your faith to make you look more like Jesus, and it will enhance your glory in some magnificent way as you enter in. Paul says there in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict. So you're not looking at Paul like, okay, that's Paul, right? That's what happens to Paul. And Paul's reminding these believers, engaged in the same conflict that you see that I had and now hear that I still have. Okay, 1 Thessalonians. Paul, beginning his letter to the church at Thessalonica. I just want to give you a kind of a smorgasbord of the different letters to the different churches so you can see it's not like, well, this church over here, you're going to suffer. But everybody else, you're good. Okay, 1 Thessalonians. And you became imitators of us. Notice this, you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that, that's how those two work together. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, right? How you receive the gospel in the midst of that affliction with joy is an example to everybody else of what that looks like. Okay, so Thessalonica, you're on display of what it looks like to receive the gospel. Here's his second letter to them where he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Notice verse 7 in particular. The granting of that relief. When does that happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So from here until the day you drop, you're going to suffer for Christ. But he's encouraging them. God's just. He's going to deal with this all. Right? And so again, no... Not trying to sugarcoat that in, in any way. And then one last in Hebrews 10, 32 and 33. <clears throat> but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, okay, came believers, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes, and here's a display of that sufferings, what did that look like? Very similar to what it looked like for Peter's readers as well. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, right? Okay, so, so there's the display, and that's, again, just I just grabbed a handful of verses that speaks to that end. Peter is trying to drill down into the hearts of his readers that they would know that you're joining your brothers and sisters throughout the world in their sufferings for the cause of Christ. As he mentioned earlier in his letter, he wanted them to be reminded 
to not be surprised when they face suffering for Christ as though something strange were happening to them, but to understand that to follow Christ is to join him in suffering for his sake. Okay? Now, that command to resist the devil by remaining firm in our faith in the midst of trial and persecution can feel extremely weighty, and it is very weighty. So what assurance do I have that I can obey that command to resist him by being firm in my faith? Maybe you've thought about that as you've read through various aspects of suffering throughout church history, even today. And you think, man, I wonder if I'll stand in that day. Or if I'll stand any day. Maybe, maybe I'll just renounce him if a coworker says something to me and it'll cause me to, to turn away. That, that's the fragileness with, with which you should feel your own soul. Not to think yourself strong that I'm, I'm going to stand firm in this. I don't care what comes. Right? It's just like, God, have mercy on me, please. Right? Hold me. What, what assurance do I have that I can do this? Well, the answer is found back at the beginning of this letter. If you look back with me at chapter 1, turn back to chapter 1 with me real quick, and look at verses 3 through 5. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And if I can have somebody read that for us. Okay, notice this, verse 5 in particular, this inheritance that God has given us in Christ, who by God's power are being guarded, how? Through faith. You see that? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is guarding you, and the instrument that he's using to guard you is faith. Faith was a gift from God to us, and it's God's means of keeping us. So this isn't relying upon me. It's the faith that God has given to me, which is the assurance that I will stand on that day, because this is nothing that's coming from within me in and of myself. It's, it's God has firmly rooted me in believing in Jesus Christ. And if I look to myself, I think, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to make it on my own. But God has promised that he will keep us, he will guard us, and he does so through faith. Faith is the object through which God causes us to persevere. So that thought ought to be encouraging as we consider our own weakness and the temptation to abandon the faith in the face of suffering for Christ. That faith is rooted in God's power. He's keeping us, he's guarding us through that. Okay, all right, before we move on to verse is 10 and 11, any questions or comments about verses 8 and 9?
That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, and you look back to Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ to not only believe, so there was the gift. Why do I believe? It's been granted to me to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. So yeah, it makes all the difference. You're right, Michelle, all the difference in the world, knowing that that faith is, has been given to me as a gift from God. Okay, let's, let's move on here in verse 10. Again, what he's seeking to do, what he seeks to do here in verse 10 is to put this suffering into eternal perspective, as he did at the beginning of his letter. It's very similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why would we subject ourselves to these type of things if this is all there is? We ought to eat, drink, and be merry if there's nothing beyond this. But the reality is that there is. So look at verse 10 as Peter goes on here. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter uses the same phrase at the beginning of verse 10 as he did in chapter 1, verse 6 when he was speaking about suffering, and that phrase is a little while. You notice that in verse 10? After you have suffered a little while. Now, when he speaks about suffering in this way, he isn't speaking about a short period of time in their lives or in our lives. Rather, he's using that phrase to refer to the rest of their lives here on earth as they live and suffer for Christ but he's looking at that in light of eternity. And so he refers to it as a little while. And we see that by the way in which he contrasts that phrase, suffered a little while with God having called you to his eternal glory. Notice here that suffering is contrasted with glory and the little while is contrasted with eternal so while Peter doesn't seek to minimize the reality and pain of suffering for Christ during this life, he doesn't want these believers and us to be left without hope. So he helps them to see one last time at the end of this letter that this suffering has an expiration date, so to speak. But the glory that is to come does not. It is eternal and it will never fade. It's very similar with how the Apostle Paul was inspired to write about suffering as well. 2 Corinthians 4.17 and Romans 8.18. Notice this. And, and think about Paul's life. Later on in this letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 11, he kind of lists out the sufferings that he has gone through for the cause of Christ. And But watch how he puts this together. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's helpful. Notice how he contrasts these words. The word light there in verse 17 is contrasted with 
weight. Okay? So light, minimal, weight, heavy. Okay? Momentary. This is just a short time. Okay? Just a short time here is contrasted with eternal. And then affliction is contrasted with glory. So you have this light momentary affliction and this eternal weight of glory. And Paul says here, it's beyond all comparison, which you'll see him elaborate on in Romans chapter 8. That's massively encouraging for us. And Paul was doing the same thing that Peter was doing, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to drive home into the hearts of these believers. It's, it's light momentary. And you may not feel like it is right now, but it is in light of what you're about to enter into, okay? It's, it's light, it's momentary, and you're about to enter into this eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So what does that mean? Notice what Paul says here in Romans 8, 18, which also he has talked about uh, sufferings here. Watch what he says, for I consider, and Ellie, you'll appreciate this, this is an accounting term here, I consider, I reckon, right? I'm looking at this. I consider this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is saying, it's not like, hey, I want you to take your sufferings for Christ and put them on one side of the scale and then take the glory that is to come and put it on the other side of the scale. And let's see, maybe the glory will just outweigh the suffering. And that way you'll say, okay, it's worth it. Paul is saying this, don't bring it to the scale. It's not worth comparing. Your sufferings will seem like nothing in compared to the glory that you're about to enter into. And so that's the encouragement for us in the midst of this. And even if you don't have that perspective right now, the scriptures are seeking to drill that mentality into your heart because the moment you awaken in glory, you will believe it more than you ever have. And so that's the encouragement that we have. And that's why Peter can say, after you've suffered a little while, which is the rest of your life, and it's a little while, it's going by quickly, it's a vapor. And that suffering that you're experiencing for Christ, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, it isn't meaningless. Paul actually says here in 2 Corinthians 4, it's preparing, it's doing something. That affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So God's not just putting us through it and just saying, that didn't have any purpose, but I just wanted to see how you were going to react. God's using that for the glory that we're about to enter into. And so back in, in 1 Peter 4 here, he concludes this verse by telling us that the God of all grace, isn't that a wonderful statement? The God of all grace. Man, I wonder if I'm going to make it through. I wonder if I'm going to press through. Grace is going to meet you at your moment of need every single time that you need it. That's the encouragement. I don't know if I can endure this suffering. Grace will meet you in that suffering and cause you to persevere. And so this God of all grace, this grace that will sustain us time and time again in our suffering, 
even to the point of death, that God will himself. And, and notice how personal this statement is that Peter makes here. After you've suffered a little, little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, why didn't he just say, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you? What? Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is personal in your suffering. He strengthens us. He's with us. And Peter seeks to remind his readers of that. He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, these four words, if you want to do a little word study sometime later in this week, these four words are virtually synonymous. You'll look at them and say, that's the same thing that the other word meant. But he just uses a slightly different word to say that. What Peter is getting at here is he uses these four synonymous words to speak about the completion of God's work in the lives of believers at the consummation of all things. He's saying the same thing using four different words to drive home the reality of what God has promised to do for us. He's going to restore you. That, mean, that word means to perfect something. It reminds us that he who began this good work in us, he's going to bring it to completion. Listen, Satan seeks to destroy you through suffering, yet God is perfecting you through it, and he will complete it on that last day. We see a great example of this in the life of Job, right? Satan had an intention in Job's suffering. So did God. And God permitted Satan to go this far but no further. And God was working in that suffering in a great way and contrary to how Satan was trying to use it. So he's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you, which is to say that he's going to make you steadfast, fixed, immovable, complete, Again, very similar to what you saw in the last one. And as you, as you think about that reality, this, this aspect of, of being immovable, not doubting, not questioning God, and how glorious that day is going to be when our faith no more vacillates to and fro due to our circumstances. But God is going to fix us like a mighty pillar on that glorious day when our faith gives way to sight. And on that day and forevermore, there will be no distrust, no more doubting, but perfect and eternal confidence in our God. And so he's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you. And again, this refers to the reality that he will make us firm and unchanging in our attitude or belief. Commentator Karen Jobes had this to say. I really appreciated this. She said, certainly when Christ is revealed and faith becomes sight, the Christian's belief in the gospel will reach its full certainty. No more questioning at that moment. But rock solid. And then lastly, he says, he will establish you, which again means to make stable. So all of these again are synonymous and are used to assure us of the completion of the work that God will accomplish at the end. And to that, Peter adds this benediction in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we remember the context in which 
Peter's letter was written, this verse really becomes all the more glorious for us. To all observers in the physical realm, dominion belonged to the Roman government, finding its apex in the emperor or the Caesar. You didn't go against Rome and get away with it. Theirs was the dominion. At least they thought that it was. You would pay the price for your rebellion against this tyrannical force. And to claim your allegiance to King Jesus and to the kingdom of God over Caesar and the kingdom of Rome was a death sentence, essentially. But what Peter does here is he reminds his readers, listen, there is a greater throne one that is eternal, one that is fixed, one that is governing the kingdom of men, raising up rulers and putting them down as he wills. And that is the one to whom dominion truly belongs. And listen, that is the one who is not only your king, but your father, your savior, your redeemer, and the one who has made you his own, who calls you, to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And then as Peter moves on in his final greetings here in verses 12 through 14, I just want to make a couple of observations with the uh, time that we have remaining. First, we see the intention with which Peter wrote this letter in verse 12. Look at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This true grace of God upon which they are to stand firm is everything that Peter has talked about in this letter. This suffering for the sake of Christ that these believers have been called to is evidence of the grace of God in their lives. And they are to stand firm in it and not be deceived into thinking that there is an easier path to glory. Jesus said this, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But... The grace of God is great and powerful and he will see to it that they inherit all the promises that God has given to them. And so they've been exhorted to not shift from this hope that they have been born again into. As we looked earlier in 1 Peter 1.13, he said, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so their roots were to go down deep into this reality. This is the true grace of God. Don't shift from this. This is what it means to follow Christ. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through great trials. When he's tried to put that into eternal perspective as he's gone throughout this letter, but he's exhorting them and reminding them, this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in this and don't shift. Don't give in to a counterfeit gospel that seeks to minimize or to change what the grace of God looks like. Stand firm in the gospel that you have heard. So that, that, that's the first observation that I see in this passage. And then the second one is found in verse 
13 here, where he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Peter's reference to Babylon here is very significant. I don't know how many of you might remember the very first lesson that we did <laughs> in, this, uh, in this study. But in that lesson, I brought out that reality of Peter's readers being exiles, if you remember there, in verses 1 and 2. And at the beginning of this letter, as he did there, he's reminding them again here that they're exiles, remembering that Babylon was the capital city of the exile of the Jews. Just as they were foreigners in that land, so too are these believers foreigners here on this earth. And so Babylon is not the literal city of ancient times, but it's used figuratively here by Peter to remind these believers that they, along with the believers who were with Peter, are all exiles and strangers who are making their way toward their homeland, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately, and how encouraging that is to be reminded of that. You're in a foreign land, Peter is saying. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Again, there's that aspect of this inclusivity that Peter sees here. It's not just you guys who are exiles and strangers and you're be treating it, treated as such as you walk through this world. It's all of God's people. We're foreigners here. They think we're strange by the way that we behave and how we conduct our lives, and they persecute it for us just as they did to our Lord. As, as we bring this letter to a conclusion, I hope what we have learned is that suffering for Christ is real and intense, and it's the normal path for the Christian, but all of it, every little bit of it, is being used by God to perfect you and conform you into the image of His Son. And it has an end. It will be just for a little while in comparison to the eternal glory that we're about to enter into. Amen? Amen. All right. Any questions, comments? We conclude that. All right, well, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again this morning for the privilege that we have had to go through this letter together. And as I prayed at the beginning, Father, I ask that you would help us not to just hear these things and then not do anything about them, Lord, but to hear them and to think deeply about them, that our minds would be renewed that we would think about suffering for Christ in the right way. And Father, I pray that our hearts have been encouraged, that we would remember that suffering is the normal path for the Christian. It's not something that we seek after. It's not something that we try to bring upon ourselves. But it's the normal course of living for Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so thank you for reminding us of that and thank you for reminding us that you are the God of all grace. 
that you will meet every need that we have, even unto death, Lord, if that be your calling for us to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus. And so I just pray that you would help us to keep these things in mind as we go through this world, depending on your grace moment by moment for your glory and for our good. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Can I ask a question that you thought about? Yes, you may.